My name is Tim, and it is so great to worship with you today here at our Miller campus. A shout out to everyone watching online from Mod 7 at our Correctional Center campus. So great to have you join us each week. And then welcome to everyone watching online. It was so fun for me to hear this last week about someone who was, who was traveling outside of Omaha last weekend. They were actually out of the country, and they were able to, to actually check in online from where they were in Europe and worship with us in real time. So, so what a great way to use this online service. Love, love hearing that. Well, today I want to start off with a question. What sets Christianity apart? In our world of, of multiple religious options, right, of so many worldviews and belief systems, is there anything that makes Christianity unique? The same question came up at a British conference on comparative religions in the 20th century, where experts from around the world debated what, if any, belief was unique to the Christian faith. And so this, this conference, of course, is an academic environment, it's a debate, and so lots of ideas were thrown around, but, but the people involved in this debate couldn't find any one belief that they thought was unique to Christianity, that they couldn't isolate anything that set Christianity apart in a very distinguishing way. And so after this debate had been going on for a while, a man by the name of C.S. Lewis, who was one of Christianity's leading thinkers and writers of the 20th century, he wanders into the room where this debate was going on. And C.S. Lewis asks, what's all this rumpus about? Uh, I love that word rumpus, by the way. You get extra points uh, between now and next week if you can work that into a conversation, right? But so, so what's all this rumpus about? And so, so he's, he's told that, that they're discussing Christianity's unique contributions to world religions, and they can't isolate anything that makes Christianity unique. And then listen to what Lewis says right away. He says, oh, that's easy. It's grace. And so after, after those involved in the debate it kind of threw this idea out and talked about it for a while, they agreed that the Christian belief about grace sets it apart as unique among every other belief system. And this topic of grace is what we want to be talking about today as we look at the Bible together. And just so we get on the same page early about what grace is, grace simply means undeserved favor. Grace means God unconditionally loves us because of what Jesus has done. And not because of what you do. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. But God loves us because of what Jesus did. Or if you're into acronyms, here's a helpful way to remember what grace means, right? Just the, the word grace, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace, God's riches, everything he offers is available to us, not because of what we do, but at Christ's expense, what he's done for us grace. And, and, and so here's why this is a big deal, because, because we will not understand Christianity if we don't understand this word grace, if we don't understand how central it is to, to what we do week in and week out as a church, as, as Christians. And that's why I'm so excited about getting into Ephesians chapter 2 together today, because pound for pound, Ephesians 2 is the single best 10, passage, or 10 verse chunk of scripture where we spotlight grace in a big way. 
As we dig into Ephesians 2, you'll see, you'll see that grace isn't just some idea to wrap your mind around. As we dig into Ephesians 2 today, I want you to see that the grace is, is a reality you can experience. I want you to be drawn into it. Because as, as we dig into Ephesians 2, we'll see why we need God's grace. We'll see how amazing God's grace is. And we'll see how available it is to everyone who's listening in today. I, I want you to leave here with just your jaw open in amazement, in fresh amazement, at how amazing God's grace is and what it offers to you. I, I want you to leave here saying, man, I want to talk about that with someone over lunch today or over dinner this evening. I want you to be thinking about it and, and that it still captures your attention while you're driving around later this week or while you're interacting with others throughout the week. I want grace to be amazing to us in fresh ways as we look at what Ephesians 2 has for us. So here's the four points we're going to be walking through as we dig into Ephesians 2 together. We're going to see that we desperately need God's grace. We're going to see that God richly provides grace. We're going to see that this grace transforms us in the best possible ways, and we'll see that this grace is available through faith. So that's where we're going. But now, before we do anything else, let me just read through Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 10 together, just to get the whole passage in front of us. And then we'll come back and start walking through each of those points I talked about earlier. So here's Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10. Buckle up as we get into this, because this passage starts out with some, with some bad news that that's pretty strong in its language. Here's what verse 1 says. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. That's talking about Satan, who the Bible presents as a very real, very personal agent, actor, figure, who's still active and working in our world today. Verse 3 continues, says, All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Strong language, bad news. But I'm so glad that Paul doesn't stop there. As he keeps writing, one Christian author says that, that, that Paul next brings up the best conjunction in the Bible. But God is how verse 4 starts. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. It's great news. And then we keep reading, and that great news, great news keeps getting better. Verse 8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This isn't from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So now let's go back to the start of that passage again, verses 1 through 3. And see what Paul says there about how, how, how desperately we need grace. 
Those first few verses, verses 1, 2, and 3, they, they use this strong language to show us that all of us have a problem that needs fixing. And this problem is deep, and this problem is desperate. And, and I think at least at some level, every one of us here listening in is aware of this, right? I, I mean, we're aware that we're not perfect. Personally, I've never talked to anyone who believes that they are completely 100% perfect, my first go-to response, if I ever did talk to that person who believed they were 100% perfect, would be to ask for their spouse to come be part of the conversation, right? Or, or their parents or their kids. Because once we widen their perspective out just a little bit, my guess is we hear a very different side of the story. We know something is wrong with others, and we know something is wrong with us. I mean, this is, this is why we lock our doors at night. This is why your computer password is supposed to be eight keystrokes with a capital letter, a symbol, and a few numbers, right? This is why when you turn the news on or follow the headlines, we see things far too quickly that we just identify as injustice and evil. It's, it's, it's just common knowledge that evil exists in the world out there. But, but then I think if we think about it for a few minutes, we, we also see evil lurking in our hearts as well. Evil isn't just out there. Evil is in here. Our own motives are selfish. Our own desires are corrupt. Our, our own thoughts are evil. And, and these evil motives, these evil thoughts, these evil desires, they churn inside of us, and then it doesn't take long before they spill out into evil actions. And so the Bible takes these vague notions that we all have that, that yeah, there's some stuff I need to work on. And the Bible takes these, these notions that the world isn't right, that something is broken in it. And the Bible provides a name for these notions that we have. The Bible calls it sin. At its root, sin is veering away from what God wants and what God says, and it's going our own way instead. And Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3, shows us how bleak the picture of sin is. Sin is more subtle than we imagine, and it's more serious than we fear. We have to face this head on, because this truth from God's word about who we are apart from Jesus, it runs counter to how we so often think because of our culture around us. I mean, look at those verses clear, clearly or closely. And you'll see that left to ourselves, we are dead in our sins. Our problem isn't that we're basically good and we just need a little enhancement. Our problem is that we are dead and we need resurrection. We cannot do that for ourselves. Or look closely at those verses and you see that if left to ourselves, we are aligned with Satan. We're captive to his deceit, we are in his camp. If left to ourselves, we are mastered. We are owned by our sinful desires. And we are by nature deserving of wrath. You see, sin isn't only what we do. Sin is fused into who we are. It's part of our nature. And we deserve God's holy and just judgment on sin. 
This doesn't mean everyone is as bad as they possibly can be. This doesn't mean we still can't do positive things to advance the common good in our world. But, but here's what, what this bad news does mean for us. It means that sin is part, each of us apart from Jesus, is, is part of our nature. And it touches every part of who we are. Any, every one of us has this deep problem of sin that needs a solution. This is strong language. This, this makes us uncomfortable, right? It makes us squirm a little bit because we don't like hearing this diagnosis about ourselves. But here's why this is valuable. Here, here's why we need truth from the Bible on this. It's because we need an accurate diagnosis if we are ever going to pursue and find the right remedy. I mean, if I have cancer, the most loving thing any doctor can do is to tell me that I have cancer. Because only with an accurate diagnosis will I pursue treatment as aggressively as I need to pursue treatment. Only with an accurate diagnosis of, of my true condition will I appreciate the cure if or when I find the cure, the right diagnosis is essential. Back in 1999, 20 years ago now, which is crazy for me to think about, a writer and director of M. Night Shyamalan came out with a popular movie, The Sixth Sense. Uh, I'm not going to recommend the movie, but it makes a great point, so I'm going to use it right now. If, even if you've not seen it, this will make sense. So, so the movie is about a young boy who's played by actor Haley Joel Osment, and this young boy can see dead people. That they're everywhere around him, right? That they're in and out of his everyday life. And he's working with a psychologist, played by Bruce Willis, who's coming alongside of him in this. And, and one of the twists in the movie, though, is that, is that the dead people this boy can see, they don't know they're dead. That they're walking around believing they're very much alive. And then in the course of the movie, they even twist reality. That They spin this narrative to see what they want to see. To help, to help them stay convinced that they're really alive when in fact they're dead. The diagnosis that Ephesians 2 gives us is that apart from Jesus, all of us are spiritually dead. We may be walking around thinking we are very much alive. We can spin reality. We can spin a narrative however we want to spin it. But, but the truth Ephesians 2 gives us is that apart from Jesus, we are spiritually dead. And there are indicators of this, of course. I mean, maybe you, maybe you just have this persistent, empty feeling inside of you. And that, that empty feeling has gone on, not just for a few days, but it's gone on for a really long time, and it's only getting worse. And people on the, on the outside of you, people who know you, say, his life is perfect. She has everything. But even though externally you've got it all, internally you know you are just a shell. There is no life there. Or, or maybe you've been embracing an addiction or a secret sin for decades. You've never done anything about it because you love that sin so much. Or, or, or maybe you show up at church every Sunday. You look great on the outside, 
but you know that your heart has never once been in it. And whatever you say on Sundays, whatever you do during, the, during that couple hours of the week, you know that the rest of your life, your life at home, and your life in business, you are a very different person. Pay attention to these signals and hear the diagnosis that the Apostle Paul gives you in Ephesians 2, that apart from Jesus, we're sinners. We deserve an eternity separated from the loving presence of God in a very real hell. And there's nothing we can do by ourselves to save ourselves. We are in desperate need of God's grace. And I love that Paul keeps writing to show us how God richly provides for that need. Because as we keep going, as Paul pivots from verse 3 into verse 4, Paul will show us that, that as desperate and as serious as our sin is, God's solution, God's grace is so much superior to that. As serious as our sin is, God's solution is superior to that. And so verse, verse 4, Paul starts stumbling over himself to, to get across this idea that godly, richly, God richly provides his grace. And, and God's grace is amazing. I mean, it's the best news ever about what God has done to deal with the serious nature of our sin. Because we were dead in our sins, and then God made us alive in Jesus we were under the dominion of Satan, and then God transfers us to the kingdom of Jesus. We were slaves to our sinful desires, and then God frees us to live in a way that honors him. And the only reason this radical, fundamental change in our identity is even possible, the only way we can go from children of wrath to adopted daughters and sons of God, the only way that's even possible is because of grace. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. We're not entitled to it. But God does it. But God did it. This is what verses 4 and 5 are saying. But God, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, he made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. And then Paul goes on to show us uh, how great this grace is in verse 7. He says, in the coming ages, listen to that, in the coming ages, all the way into eternity future, in the coming ages, God will show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. We, we will be able to marvel at God's grace and never get tired of it or familiar with it. We'll be able to do that for eternity. In the coming ages, God's grace will be just as great, maybe even greater, when we see how richly he's provided us with it. And so my question for us today is if God's grace is going to be amazingly great every day into eternity future, how great is God's grace to you today? 
I mean, as you think about God's grace, does it ever make you catch your breath in gratitude? As you think about and dwell on God's grace, does it still fuel your obedience and your commitment? As you think about and dwell on God's grace, does your heart shift gears a little bit where you are just amazed at the greatness of what Jesus has done for you? Is grace amazing for you today? This is a big one for me. I grew up attending church. Uh, I'm so grateful my parents made church a priority from day one, basically, of my life. And, and, and that they painted a healthy picture as parents of just faithfully following Jesus through all the ups and downs we experienced. And, and so as, as a result of their example, and then, and then certainly because of God's work in my heart, I trusted in Christ at a young age. And so because following Jesus is something that's been part of my life for such a long time, as basically as far back as I can remember, there was this season I went through where grace became familiar to me. I mean, it was just an idea. Because I think some of it was because I was exposed to it so often. Some of it is just because that's kind of my bent as a person. I love the academic side of things. My Clifton strengths, top three, are intellection, input, and learner. And so I can swim in ideas in my head all day long and be really happy. But, but, but it's easy for me then just to, just to contain something as an idea. But grace, God's amazing grace, is so much more, so much better than just an idea. And so through, through a series of experiences I had in early high school, God got my attention in fresh ways about my need for grace. I was surrounded by three or four just pivotal mentors, men in my life who, who encouraged slash challenged me to think more deeply about grace and the gospel than I had prior to that. And to see that grace and the gospel isn't something I believe in and then move on from, Grace is something I trust in and then move more deeply into. I appreciate more deeply over the course of my life. And so when I realized that grace wasn't just an idea, but it's a reality for, for me to experience, I was hooked in fresh ways. Brookside, let's be the sort of people that are hooked by God's grace, that are drawn to it, not as an idea to think about, but as a reality to experience. And let's let the goodness and the greatness of God's grace drive us, compel us to heartfelt worship, to, to persevering commitment, and then to glad obedience. That's how amazing God's grace is. So God richly provides this amazing grace. And then our third point is that grace transforms us in the best ways possible. So here's what I want to talk just a little bit about the difference that grace makes in our lives. Verses 5 and 6, the Apostle Paul, he starts piling up these very specific terms, showing how grace transforms our identity. So right now in this, in this series we're in, where we're calling this, this walk through Ephesians, we're titling this series, Who Am I? And we're looking at how truth from Ephesians shapes who we are, how we see ourselves, our identity. And we get a big answer to this who am I question in Ephesians 2. 
Because Paul says in these verses, in verses 5 and 6, who are we? In Christ, we are made alive with him. We are raised with him and we are seated with him in the heavenly realms. That's who we are. Paul's first readers would have understood what this language meant immediately. Because when someone returned victorious from battle, they were given the right hand to the king, right? To the right hand of the throne, this seat of tremendous honor. And for everyone in Christ, this same seat of honor, it's true of you. It's not something that will be true one day, really far into the future. This truth of who you are in Christ, it's not something that maybe will be true if you play your cards right and everything happens a certain way. This truth about who you are in Jesus, it is true. It's done. I mean, those verbs there, verses 5 and 6, notice that they're past tense verbs. It's already happened. This is your position in Christ. Life, victory, and honor. Some of you listening in right now, you are sitting in a jail cell. But listen to what Ephesians 2 tells you. If you've trusted in Christ, ultimately, you're seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. Some of you are just on the other side of a failed relationship. You're just on the other side of losing your job. You've been taking life on the chin for a really long time, and you feel like you are knocked to the ground because of it. Listen to what Ephesians 2 says. Ultimately, you're not knocked to the ground. Ultimately, you are raised with Christ and seated with him. So hold your head high as you move forward in a way that honors Jesus. In Christ, your identity is transformed. And then in Christ, we also have been given this transformed purpose. Verse 10 says, we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And just to be clear, listen to me here, this is important. These good works don't contribute or earn God's grace for you. That's really important. We're going to spend more time on that here in a second. Instead, these good works flow from God's grace already given to us. But verse 10, I mean, just think about what it means. It's, it's so compelling. This means that God specifically designed you to contribute in very specific ways to advance good in situations you're in in your life. It, it means that, that the God has served up the ball for you. And you just need to follow through with the swing. So, so here's what that means for you, right? Here's what we do in response to this truth in verse 10. It means, it means we stay attentive to the ways that you are uniquely placed. Maybe in high school somewhere. Maybe in a college campus. Maybe in your workplace. Maybe in your neighborhood. You are uniquely placed and you are uniquely designed to advance good in situations that you are already in. We've been talking a lot about, about this who's your one language, right? Where, where we just want to help all of us see that we don't have any accidental relationships in our lives. And so because of that, we, we want to very intentionally think about how we, can, how we can advance good in those spheres of influence we have. 
okay, how we can appropriately and winsomely bring Christ into conversations in our family, in our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our campuses, everywhere. And this verse, verse 10, at least for me, it gives me this faith-fueled boldness to say, if God has already been preparing certain things for me in advance, then I can re-engage with my neighbors. Because it's easy for those relationships just to kind of, you're driving in, the garage door goes up, you kind of wave, drive out, you wave again. It's easy for relationships with the people that live next to me to become that. And so this verse gives me this faith-fueled obedience to re-engage with, with a couple of my neighbors that are just on my heart and to say, in what ways has God already been working ahead of me? Ways that maybe I'll never fully know, but that give me this faith-fueled boldness to, to go and re-engage them, to look at how I can advance good in the lives of others around me, in the relationships that I'm already in. The best picture for what I have for what's going on in verse 10 is a scavenger hunt. So every year we travel out to the farm where Carrie grew up in central Nebraska. And, and once a year around Memorial Day, we go out there with, with another family, a uh, family that's become good friends for us. And so, so Carrie and the mom in this other family, her name is Jody, is part of this Memorial Day thing that we do. They always put together this scavenger hunt for the six kids that are there. And Carrie and Jody, they get such joy in planning this scavenger hunt, right? I mean, they, so they design it to fit the ages and the personalities and the interests of the kids. They, they hide the clues in strategic places. That They get such joy in watching the kids work together to make progress through the hunt. And then the kids themselves get joy in the scavenger hunt, right? They, they find joy in discovery using their minds and working together to find clues, and to get to the treasure at the end. You see, in a good scavenger hunt, both the planner and the participants play a key role. And in a good scavenger hunt, both the planner and the participants find joy in what's going on. Right? I wonder if that captures what's happening in verse 10. God finds joy in planning and witnessing us getting involved in the good deeds he's prepared for us. And then we find genuine joy in meaningfully participating in the work God has laid out for us. God's grace, it transforms our identity, and God's grace transforms our purpose. There's one more truth we can't miss from this passage. It is that grace is available through faith. This is such great news because this grace that we so desperately need, this grace that transforms our identity in the most radical ways, this grace is available to us. Verses 8 and 9, such key verses in this passage. Paul says, for it's by grace you have been saved through faith. And this isn't of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. So Paul spells it out very clearly for us here. This saving grace isn't from ourselves. Our good works don't contribute to our right standing before God. We are saved by grace through faith. A lot of you know I've been traveling to Zambia about once a year for the last decade or so. And a few years ago, I was able to travel outside of the Hope Center, where we usually go and land and do a lot of our care for the orphans and training and things like that. 
I traveled outside of the Hope Center to a farm just a few kilometers away from the Hope Center. And this farm is this plot of land that a missionary developed a long time ago, like decades ago, into this thriving plot of ground, of this thriving space there in the Serenje district of Zambia. And so this farmer who he was a missionary, who actually, when he was in a career in the United States, he was an engineer. He knew that he had to find a way to get water from this lake that was right near the farm to the dry fields where the crops were growing. And so since he was an engineer, he could do stuff like this. He, he designed and he dug this channel system running between the, the lake, this great source of water, and the crops that needed the water so badly. And so, so this channel, these channels that he dug, that they became a pathway for the life-giving lake to reach the crops that needed the water the lake could offer. Right? That's exactly what faith is for us. Our faith is like those channels. Faith is the channel through which God's grace delivers life to our dead hearts that so desperately need it. And all of this is from God. It's, it's his grace. It's his work. That's our confidence in salvation. That the, 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 this salvation doesn't rest on what I'm doing or how well I've done this last week or how well I do this next week. It's all of God. That's our confidence. It's not in what we do. It's in what he has done. Let me read verses 8 and 9 again. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For some of you listening in today, this is the first time you have ever heard anything like this. Maybe you've been working really hard to try to earn your salvation. Maybe you feel burned out trying to either earn God's favor or stay in God's favor. Maybe you're just afraid all the time, wondering, am I doing enough? The good news of Ephesians 2 is that God richly provides his grace to us through Jesus. And then that good news keeps getting better when we see that that good news is available through faith, not through what we do, but through what Jesus has done. And you can receive God's saving grace today. I mean, this passage even gives us a sort of framework for doing that. In your own seat, wherever you're at right now, you can echo these own words in your heart to God as an expression of faith in him. Where we just follow what, what Ephesians 2 has laid out for us, where we say, God, I know I'm in desperate need of your grace. My sin has created a situation that I cannot save myself from. Where we say, God, I know you've richly provided grace. Through Jesus dying on the cross, for my sins. And then you say, Jesus, I accept your work on the cross in my place. I, I trust in what you've done for me. And then you just, you can finish that out by saying something as simple as, Jesus, now I'll follow you as my Savior, my Lord. Jesus, you've given me life. You've changed my identity. I will follow you. And then the glorious truth of this passage that it proclaims is that for everyone who's placed their faith in Jesus, maybe even through a prayer like what I just led us through, you have been brought from death to life. You've been transferred from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of light, and your eternity is secured. 
we began this message today talking about how, how grace distinguishes Christianity from every other belief system that's out there. And I think as we've dug deeply into grace, we've seen that. But, but I think we can go one step further. We can say grace isn't only what makes Christianity unique. Grace makes Christianity compelling. You see, our, our desperate need for grace draws us to it. We see God richly provide grace. We see how amazing it is. We see the power that it works in our life. And we see that this grace is available to everyone who would place their faith in Jesus. Grace isn't only what makes Christianity unique. Grace makes Christianity compelling. Brookside, let's be compelled by grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in our desperate state of need, you showed us grace. Thank you for richly providing us this grace, not because of anything we've done, but because of what you, what you did for us in sending Jesus to die in our place on the cross. Jesus, thank you that our hope is, is in that. Thank you that our confidence is in that. Jesus, I, I pray that we would be a church that is so compelled by your grace that we live out of the identity you've given us and the purpose that you've placed in us. Jesus, help us to continue to live by grace through faith. It's in your name we pray. Amen.